0: Hello everyone, welcome back to the Forgecast. My name's Sam Towns. And I'm Alex Norton.
1: Before we get into today's episode, let's take a moment to thank our sponsor. The Forgecast is coming at you thanks to Rob at Weber Abrasives, our preferred supplier of all the best abrasives in the country. Get in touch today at abrasives.on.net and stay tuned for his new online store coming soon. What have you been up to this week, Sam? Oh,
0: dying. (laughs) (laughs) I, I swear I have sweat in my body weight literally every day for the last four days. Uh, I've been working out in the shed, building my new anvil stand, and getting my shed organized around my new anvil. Mm -hmm. Uh, Finally received my Beamish anvil and the uh, Beamish cube swage, which is actually an amazing swage. I'm looking forward to doing a review on both of them. But uh, I decided to do a welded, fabricated um, anvil stand, uh, as you well know, Alex, because you helped design do the math (laughs) well okay i made the design but then alex had to help me with the math because my my brain just would not comprehend the angles involved
1: see when it comes to like metallurgy or knife history and things like that sam is like the uber nerd but when it comes to math that's where i shine (laughs) it's funny You,
0: you get me you get me doing physics equations or like you know temperature or weight conversions, I'm fine. The moment you bring angles into things, I'm just done. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> I cannot do it. Uh, I, and I ended up pretty much, like, using your measurements as a guideline and, and kind of winging it anyway. Oh, God. Well, I couldn't get the, cur- the cuts very straight because I was using a four-inch angle grinder to do all the cuts, so it wasn't like I was going to be doing any kind of engineering. But I got it pretty good. Um, I got it to the point... Today, where I'm about ready to weld the feet on. Um, So I've welded the legs on, and I've got the base plate and all that kind of stuff. Now I just need to weld the feet on. Unfortunately, it's been getting stupidly humid over here at the moment. And so, you know, I walk out the door and I feel like I'm swimming. Um, And I just, just like, constantly sweat the whole day, and it just really kills you. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also gave myself some pretty bad ray burn on my left arm because I was a dumbass and forgot to put my welding gloves on while I was oh welding so yeah my, my left arm is going to be a really nice tan got a good engineer's <laughs> yeah. tan yeah. <laughs> um, I even had to mention it in the video because I'm doing a video on building the, the amble stand which will be out next week um and uh, yeah I do mention it in there to make sure the weld you wear your welding gloves mm. <laughs> because yeah I was dumb um but no, other than that, I finished off a batch of Sloyd knives. Uh, I actually finished them a couple of days ago, but I've got to put one last coat of oil on them before I put them up for sale on my Etsy store. They will be, they should be up there by the time this episode goes live, uh, if they haven't already sold. I'm hoping, you know, like, <laughs> I can hope that they've already sold by now. Uh, and I sold the O'Dwyer, the uh, my old forty kilo anvil. It actually that sold before I long. even had it. I didn't. I didn't even have a chance to advertise that I was going to sell it. Um, yeah, right. Someone commented on the photo of the new anvil when it came in and jokingly said, Haha, selling your old one, wink wink, and I went, actually, yes. And, and they messaged me just going, how much do you want for it, and when can I pick it up? <laughs> so I sold it with the stand and with a couple of the hardy tools that I'd made for it, seeing as the hardy hole on my new anvil is a little smaller than...
1: Because not only is that O'Dwyer the oh. ideal size for a knife maker, and uh, O'Dwyer make excellent anvils, that anvil's now famous.
0: Well, yeah, it's actually it's a, it's it's been on my YouTube channel since the very inception. So. Yeah, and some of and a couple of the tools that went with it actually uh, featured in some of my earliest YouTube videos. I gave away the hot cut Hardy and the uh, the bottom round swage that I made for it. So
1: from uh, memory, you're the only person I know with a yellow anvil. Yeah. Well, not anymore. Not anymore.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, there are a couple of guys who have O'Dwyer ambles. It's just that they're not on YouTube anymore, or weren't on YouTube in the beginning. Hmm. Um, but yeah. So, and I'm really happy to the person uh, that it went to the person it did. Uh, she's just getting into blacksmithing. She did a class with me about six months ago, and um, she's you know she works full time, but she's really keen to get into blacksmithing, and she uh, I'm really glad to have it go to someone who's just getting her start in, in blacksmithing. I priced it to try and get it to like a, a person who was just getting into the craft rather than going to an anvil collector. Because mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> the last thing I wanted to do was have it sit in a corner and not be used. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm really keen to get my new anvil all mounted up. I should have it mounted up before the live stream on Saturday, I'm yeah. hoping. Otherwise, my live stream will be me mounting the anvil.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, Cause... you mean mounting an on a stand. It, well, yeah, yeah. I yeah, know you're excited, anvils. so it's, you know.
0: Yes. Um, but, yeah, other than that, that's pretty much taken up my entire week. It's just been organizing this anvil stuff. Sweating anvils. Oh, man. I, and um, I, I had an interesting, per- uh, an interesting question from someone, because the Beamish anvils have a very peculiar problem that a few people have noticed, and I think I know the answer to why. Uh, they are magnetic in the middle, right? In the middle of the face, they're magnetic, and I know why. It's because they use a magnetic lifter to lift the anvils So you have to demagnetize of, them. Yeah, so you have to demagnetize the face, and I've got to go about doing that. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because it's only in this one spot and mm. everyone's like, oh, why are the anvil's magnetic? I'm like, I know exactly why it's magnetic. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's not actually that big of a problem. It's not stupidly magnetic. It's not like your hammers are going to stick to it or anything like that. You know, it's <laughs> it's just mildly magnetic. Uh, but, um, yeah, no, so other than that, yeah, that's that's pretty much been my week. My song of the week, um, I'm, I'm going way back to, you know, country roots here. Okay. Um,
1: You doing country Uh, songs or a song of the week?
0: Oh, oh, surprise. Um, (laughs) It's from the 80s. I mean, you know, Uh, and it's by Alan Jackson, you know, one of the OG country boys. Uh, And it's Chattahoochee. And uh, all of my American country friends will will know that song so well. That's even on my playlist. Yeah, man. Chattahoochee's great. I love that song. I mean, there are a lot of Alan Jackson songs that I really like. It was hard to choose one. but Did you pick it because
1: in Perth at the moment it's been hotter than a hoochie-coochie? Oh, yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes, absolutely. I I really wish I was down on the shadow (laughs) hoochie at the moment. Because, God, it was so hot today. Yeah. But what have you been up to this week, Alex? I, enjoy- I mean, I know what you've been up to, but what have you been up to?
1: Enjoying it getting down to three overnight. Hey, just shut up. <laughs> <Just> shut up. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, I'm almost done on the Damascus slip joint that I've been working on. Um, mm. It's got one last little bit of refinement because um, I'm trying to get this one as dialed in as possible. And when it is in the closed position, the back spring protrudes... Um, As clear as I can see it on the vernier calipers, it's 0.16 of a millimeter. Oh, wow. Um, I can feel it but can't see it. Right. Um, Unless I've got my magnifier, then I can see it. Um, Yeah. And so it's that painstaking point of a slip joints production where you've got to disassemble it remove like a ridiculously small amount with needle <laughs> files and then reassemble it and it's such a tight fit up that I actually have to like knock the pins in lightly mm-hmm. I can't just push them in and pull them out it's 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 too tight yeah um, and you know deliberately so um, and so yeah it's just that frustrating point but other than that it's all like all the brass is nicely shined up and the, everything's taken to a 1200 grit finish and it's, it's uh, the Damascus is looking great on it it feels really nice um, just I've opened and closed it so many times just because I'm paranoid after my first slip <laughs> joint breaking three back springs um, this one yep. has I, I learned a lot and ha- it has had no problems and feels great um, and I, this one is actually about two thirds of the size of the first one. I wanted to do everything smaller to really test myself. Uh, it's still a very nice, practical size pocket knife. Um, but yeah, it's just making everything a little bit smaller makes you pay even more attention to those thresholds. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah. And I've been refining my shim washer production even more um, now, and I've got it down to a point zero one five millimeter uh, in tempered stainless that's crazy uh, small yeah i'm really really happy with it so it's um i'm able to produce them in small batches now which uh, i'm just trying to get the consistency better uh, i have <laughs> i have been uh, drilling the center holes and not getting the results that i like so i'm moving to actually punching the holes i'm oh, yeah? using a uh, custom made shear um, and a jig to hold them, and I'm, I'm getting cleaner results with that. So um.
0: yeah, I was I was going to recommend a uh, button punch, you know, because they make those mm. like, button punches and stuff like that.
1: Well, part of my um, my whole process of this is that not only do I want to make everything that is in the. Um, the folders i want to make all of the tooling as well so mm-hmm. it's uh it's been an interesting thing it's, with the tooling you need to make it once <laughs> so if you make it well so <laughs> yeah but the um quality of how this slip joint is turning out is a testament to how well all of the tooling has been working so i've been really really pleased with it um awesome most people who have been following my Instagram. Will have seen my PUCO study that I've been doing. Um, yeah,
0: I've been really enjoying it. It's been really good.
1: Yeah, um, although um, any sort of uh, Norseophiles would note the um, very, very um, obvious addition of a ricasso to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, Puc- yeah, they're a little in-
0: they're a little anachronistic. A little You're bit, not.
1: but um, the I really wanted my touch mark to be in there, and because I punch my touch marks doing that on a blade bevel, uh, things get awkward. So, they do. Uh, only the, the, the my justification is that the only reason that a puko goes blade goes all the way to the guard uh, is because th- when you are pushing forward on say a carving cut, you get the most leverage against the blade right above the guard. Um, so the You'll note that my ricasos are angled, so there's actually only about 5 mil of ricasso Mm -hmm. above the guard. So it's very, very small, and so I'm justifying it through that. But outside of that, (laughs) I've got one that's monosteel, one that is kumai, uh, because it's me, uh, and one that is um, Damascus, 96-layer ninja pattern Damascus. Ninja. (laughs) And they're coming out great. I'm really, really happy with them. Um, They have gone through my rigorous testing so far um they'll go through more once there's an edge on them um but all of the uh so far the the brutality i've put them through all three types have, have gone through the same testing and come up trumps so i'm pretty happy with yeah that. i saw
0: you doing the uh, the mild steel chisel tests uh, yeah
1: and the tip test into the into wood as well yep and then somebody actually commented, um, why does nobody ever show what happens to a cheap knife when you do that? So I actually did, <laughs> I did a follow-up video where I did exactly the same testing with a cheap knife to hilarious results. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah when, I, I, I want to do that. Uh, it's given me an idea for a video that I want to do in the future where I want to actually go to a shop and buy a cheap knife, take it home, and mm-hmm. then make a copy of that knife, but make it properly. Uh, yeah, right. so you've got two side by side that are they look identical, but one is actually a cheaply mass produced knife and one is uh properly tempered and and made steel uh, and then put them through a ring of tests and and show how they both hold up i I'm, I'm pretty keen to do that video I think that's a really good idea yeah, cool um I like that idea. I've got a, um, a bit, I did a huge bunch of steel prep for more folders and things. I had a past student of mine, a young fella that's um, I'm not doing classes uh, at the moment, so he hasn't been able to have classes with me. But I said, "Hey, you can shadow me for a few days if you want," and he shadowed mm-hmm. me during some steel prep, and he got to watch some Damascus get made and some Kumai get made and things. So that was good. But I made enough to be able to do a few upcoming knives, which is going to be cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've got the glimmerings I say glimmerings of a first sword commission um, mm-hmm. the they haven't put the deposit down yet so mm-hmm. after all of the long talks um, they seem to have it's only been 24 hours but you know it's my (laughs) first it's my first sword commission so you know you get excited but um patience grasshopper patience yeah they're getting they're getting it at a pretty decent price uh considering that they're giving me creative control over the design and that's the best way to sweet talk me if you're getting if you're trying to commission a knife from me you will always get more than your money's worth if you just say to me you just design it
0: Oh, same. I, I, I closed my books a couple of months ago and basically said that I wasn't going to take commissions until someone same came to me and said, I want a sword. Yeah. And I want it out of Damascus. You do the rest. Yeah. And I went, okay, I'm taking that. Because uh-huh. <laughs> the moment you get given artistic freedom, it's just such an awesome feeling. It really is. And you have fun with it. Yeah. And, you, and like you said, you almost always give like 110 percent yeah you always end up having fun
1: <laughs> well this one isn't the uh, the the commission that i've always wanted was for somebody to say i want a uh, as accurate and and traditional as you can realistically make it katana i would love to actually get that commission but nobody's got mm. that kind of budget um yeah, but
0: no, not not for what i would have to charge for it yeah
1: exactly so um this one, though, is a Viking sword. Um, nice. I am opting for, if they go ahead with it, I am opting for a Peterson Type E mm-hmm. for the nerds in the audience. Um, and it's going to be pretty clean, but a fun build, I think. A nice. very fun build. I'm, I'm, I hope they go through with it. Um, and finally, I am building a seven-ton press. Yeah it's only a little one it's just i'm sick of making damascus by hand (laughs) i'm just sick of it
0: it it gets that way
1: yeah i don't want it for anything else to be honest it's literally just going to be a little damascus machine uh, because my forges will only ever do two inch high stacks maximum and so i don't really need a 25 ton press i don't uh, ever want to make hammers i don't i don't like making hammers So um, I'm thinking, what's the smallest press I can get away with that will help me make Damascus without killing my arm and making me exhausted at the end of the day all over like one billet that's a decent Mm. layer count, you know, with some good patterning in it. Because anybody can make a little low-layer twist in an afternoon, but, you know, when you're trying to make like 100-layer plus and you want to put laddering in and reform it and all that sort of thing, even a seven ton press is enough to make that whole job really relaxing yeah absolutely so um that's that's going to be happening over the next week um the i've got the, the it's made out of log splitter like sam's mm-hmm. um that's here um and i've got all the steel and everything for it for the dies and all that i just need to put it all together and, um that should be fun so you'll be seeing that uh maybe a little bit in the videos but like i said it's only going to be used for making up damascus that's all Fair enough. Hydraulic or kinetic? It's hydraulic. All right. Uh, I am still getting a fly press, uh, but that is um, currently restricted by border restrictions and things um, between Victoria and Tasmania. But uh, there is still a, uh, I think it's a six or seven ton fly press in my future. Nice. Yeah. Jealous. Thanks to a very handsome gentleman. Mm, Oh, I want a fly press. Yeah, everyone wants a fly press. That's the problem. <laughs> um, They're so hard to find in Australia. They really are pain. painfully hard to find in Australia. Even Jason Elard had to actually get his brought down from Victoria because there's just none in Tasmania. But there's nothing much of anything in Tasmania, which is why I like it.
0: And if you want testament to what FlyPress fly is capable of, you look at Jason Ellard. Yeah, exactly. Because literally his a, everything his, he does with
1: a friggin' number eight. It's, a, it's uh, an eight, is it? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, muscle power swinging swinging off that thing like it's a bloody (laughs) merry-go-round i love watching you i love watching him swing off that arm it's hilarious planking on the top of it and things i wish i was in my 20s again
0: no yeah well i'm I'm still in my 20s i don't feel like it though.
1: (laughs) so my song of the week um i I don't want to keep hitting everybody with cat empire but i'm going to cheat um, I mentioned when I did the Cat Empire episode that um, both of the singers have solo careers as well. Um, mm-hmm. But I mentioned that Harry James Angus's solo career is a little bit weird. Um, <laughs> and one of my... he f- I- only did, like, two solo albums, I think, maybe three, but one of them is particularly good. It's called Little Stories. And on Little Stories is a song called My Boring Life. And it's a um, very sort of somber um understated acoustic piece about how you may think that your life is boring but it's not as bad as it could be so mm. so get over it <laughs> but it's done in this really haunting way the whole album is weirdly captivatingly haunting um it's it's a strange album and I highly recommend listening to the whole thing if you've got the stomach for it but it it might depress you mm-hmm It's a bit like you listen to the high-energy sort of just scoobity-bop-bop sort of singing that he does in Cat Empire, and then you listen to his solo album. It's like, that's not what I was expecting at all. (laughs) What is wrong with this guy? (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, My Boring Life by Harry James Angus. Cool. Now the Forgecast playlist grows ever weirder. Of course. Yeah, so um, we have a shit ton of emails Um, do you want to do them or inspirations first let's do emails because this could take a while this could take a while (laughs) (laughs) well our first email is from Roman Nicolao i hope i'm pronouncing that correctly he says hi sam and alex sam you seem to be very knowledgeable in the properties of steel as i'm a novice smith i'd like to learn more about types of steel and the composition thereof if you have any reading material you could recommend i really enjoy the podcast as well as both of your youtube and insta content i also appreciate the help you have already given me keep up the good work and if i can ever get down your way i'll owe you both some beers thanks again roman
0: yeah, thanks for that, Roman. Um, I, it's a question that I get a lot, um, You know, given that I'm the steel nerd on the Forgecast and I tend to talk about steel on and off the, the yes, podcast. Yes, I'm the woodmaster.
1: Sam's the yeah, steel master.
0: Absolutely. Um, but yeah, it is a common question. The, the, the simplest answer is, if you want to learn about metallurgy, uh, go to your local library and find metallurgical textbooks. Um, normally they have them on text, uh, textbooks for university students, And for, like, uh, year 11 and 12 uh, high school students, I would normally start there with the basics and then move on from there. There's normally books like Intro to Metallurgy, that kind of thing. If you're looking for specifically knife-making metallurgical books, uh, then there is a book called Knife Engineering, and I'm just going to quickly find the name of the author, because I brought it up earlier. Uh, It is Laren Thomas, L-A-R-R-I-N. T-H-O-M-A-S Laren Thomas Uh, And that's not a book that I've read myself But I've heard really good things From people like Niels Vandenberg And a whole bunch of others who have read it So definitely worth a look Um, The other person I would look at is Kevin Cashin He's done a lot of work in knife, uh, steel And, you know, teaching people About that kind of thing I think he has a couple of DVDs available on his website uh, or he did the last time I checked, and uh, he is one of the people that I learned a lot from, but a lot of my learning just comes from reading old university textbooks from my stepdad and ones that I've picked up ever since then, so... It depends on how deep you want to get, but realistically, if you're just getting into knife making, learning the ins and outs of deep metallurgy isn't really necessary, Yeah. um, because unless you have temperature control kilns and and the ability to, like, finely control your environments... Both you're the not heating up be... and
1: the cooling down.
0: Exactly. You're not going to be able to control uh, the that process well enough to make use of the information that you will have. But it will be useful if you decide to go down a more professional route. Um, nothing really out outperforms practical experimentation... Uh, when you're getting started, you know, just trying it out, understanding the basics, and then trying it out on some very basic steels, stuff like 1084, 1075, 15, and 20. Those steels are so simple to use, uh, and you can play with them, get all different kinds of results out of them. Blue, blue black the spine, temper with a torch, temper with the oven, all that kind of stuff, and get practical experience and what those techniques do to the material that you're working on. But yeah, uh, thank you very much for the question. And hopefully you end up looking into metallurgy, but it can be incredibly dry and very math focused. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a lot of graphs and various, you know, very large $20
1: words.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
1: Um, Well, thanks for writing in, Roman. Hopefully that gives you at least a starting point to look into it. Our next email comes from Ben Heiswolf, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, He says, Assuming I made a friction folder for some completely unknown reason... (laughs) Would you recommend completely unknown. <laughs> would you recommend washes between blade and scales? I have only made fixed blades so far, so I have no insight there. Are the washers worth it or is it an oven engineering for a simple first learning folder? Maybe it's even absolutely unnecessary. Thank you again for all the work you put into the podcast, Instagrams, and YouTube channels. I love it all, and I'm very thankful for you being out there and helping the beginners like me, avoiding at least some mistakes. Thank you, and have a good time. Lots of health. So Sam and I differ in opinion on this. Yeah, we do, actually. Uh, just a little. Just just a touch. Yeah,
0: so I I'm, I'm am a slip joint and friction folder collector, and... I'm also a massive traditionalist and a stubborn asshole, Mm -hmm. And so, traditionally speaking, slip joints and friction folders did not and do not have uh, washers in them. Uh, That was a very modern kind of adaptation when you start talking about flippers and, you know, like... uh, Assisted opening knives and stuff like that, where you want the smoother action. Uh, In traditional knives, especially in friction folders... The word friction <laughs> is in the is in the title of the knife, and the friction is there to both hold it closed and to assist in holding it open. So um, the washers don't provide as much friction as just direct contact with the scale material or with the liners if you're using the liners uh, in a friction folder, although it's not common to use liners in friction folders. Um, so yeah, I, I don't normally... Advise using washers uh, I can see Alex and I had a conversation about this recently Because uh, I think we actually had a conversation Over this email <laughs> It, it was, was about
1: as heated a discussion as Sam and I Can have
0: <laughs> Yeah we, we don't really argue uh, We never do but we We're we
1: both we're both Stubborn assholes like,
0: Well not only are we stubborn assholes But we're also willing to understand Where people are coming from Like we're always willing to be wrong um, Alex brought up a very good point uh, in his argument, I'll let him say it, though. I had two good points. Well, no, you had one. <laughs> the other point was <laughs> bullshit. <laughs>
1: um, without the addition of a washer, um, you will get rubbing of your uh, the inside of your liners on the ricasso or pivot point of your blade, which obviously your blades going to be steel, your liners may be something like brass, um, if you do have metal liners and that will cause scratching on the inside of it and if you have uh, just a satin finished blade in there or or something maybe brute de forge or something that you've put in there that's not going to matter but if you have polished Damascus that's going to stick out like dog's bollocks Um, and so washers will actually remove any of that scraping from happening if you've lined it up correctly but not all friction folders actually have metal liners. You might actually just have wooden scales butting up against there, and that's not really going to cause much of a problem, depending on the wood, depending on the finish, depending Although, on blah, blah, then blah. Then
0: grit can get caught between the blade and the, and the bolsters. Yeah, cause li-
1: liners, out, so. metal liners aren't just for the pretties. Um, one thing you could do is to use G10 liners, and then you, um, it's, it's a really good sort of halfway point between them. But the other mm-hmm. point that I, um, I did make um, which Sam seems to have completely forgotten about. No, is, no, I remember. Is that the fri- just- the friction in friction folders doesn't always come from the peening of the pin, squeezing the um, scales against the sides of the blade, creating a pinch. Sometimes the friction actually comes from the shaping of the uh, the locking run. the, the um, there Dang, yeah. No, no, there is a radius around the, um, uh, where the pivot point is, where the axis is. There's actually a rounded section that actually runs against the locking pin if you've got a locking pin that's nice and close to the pivot point. Some people put the locking pin back for the actual tang, uh, quote-unquote tang to rest against, and that's fine. But you can actually do it so that the locking pin is right up butted against and actually rubbing against the underside of the knife blade and if you do that you can actually put little bumps in there at the open just before the open and just before the closed position so your knife will actually click closed and click open using friction and I actually did this on the friction folder that I made recently and you can see it in the one of the videos that I put out there I actually show the click uh, it's very difficult to do and takes a lot of precision but that friction can actually Hold it open and closed in a lovely way, while maintaining a very nice, loose, gliding feel when opening and closing the blade.
0: Yeah, so it's a, it's a it's a simple kind of spring detent kind of idea, kind of without yeah. without using a spring. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's just using patience. <laughs> yeah, I mean the thing is, a lot of friction folders don't actually have stop pins or locking pins, mm. um, and so you know, like that's on liner on linered fiction folders i can see that being easier to put in than on non-linered friction folders you know not a lot of friction folders have liners but um it would
1: help to have a mill i don't have a mill but i'd love no yeah
0: (laughs) it would it would make life a lot easier to have a mill in a lot of cases when it comes to folders
1: one point that i made to sam which i didn't mean as anything bad but he hasn't made a slip joint yet he owns a lot of them and knowing the difference between how one feels without because when you're making one you actually have the chance to put it together without the washers and then take it apart and put it together with the washers the feel difference between having washers and not having washers for me is extremely noticeable even (coughs) even before you have any everything peened together and one of the things of being a collector and having a lot of slip joints you don't actually get the opportunity to pull apart and then put washers in and see how they would feel if they did have washers and being in a position where I've done both because I wondered as well, because as you've heard with my journeys with learning to make shim washers, it's a pain in the ass. It's so bad. It's awful. I don't do not recommend it. I'm just a massive nerd. Um, Buy them just buy pre-made ones. It's so much easier. (laughs) Um, But Having the, the felt the difference on the same knife with and without, I would never not have washers in there on a friction folder, on a slip joint, on any type of knife.
0: Yeah, and and like that, that is a very valid point, um, and I don't disagree. Like I, I haven't owned a knife with uh, with washers except modern folding knives, mm. and you know like the the utility of a modern folding knife having a washer or a bearing. I've I've had both. Um, obviously the, the smoothness of the action is amazing. And it's also really helpful if you want to flick that thing open. Bearings are really snappy. Oh yeah. 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 And, and that's great. Uh, the, the thing for me is like, it's not necessarily that I don't understand the improvement of the feel of the action.
1: You're just a traditionalist. Uh, Exactly. (laughs) I'm also, I'm also not
0: interested in the more finicky nature of making washes and implementing (laughs) washes cuz like one of the things you got to take into account and it's something that Alex and I have discussed is if you put washers on either side of your blade then you have to make your sp- your um, your spring your back spring oversize mm. in order to account for the width of the washers otherwise you end up with a gap between your liners and your back spring yes. so it adds another level of meticulous you know hand grinding and stuff like that if you don't have a mill Mm. to account for that width. And when you're talking 0.015 of a millimeter, you're talking microscopic changes. In the, the sizes, uh, you know, like a, a 400 grit sandpaper is probably a little too aggressive yeah. for removing that kind of uh, material. And, so,
1: And we've probably introduced a whole new <coughs> slew of people now because a lot of people have been getting on this challenge, which is awesome, by the way, the forge, the, the response to this particular forge. Oh, yeah, challenge I've, been I've been cool.
0: loving this. But it's I think
1: we have made a lot of people suddenly realize that there is a huge difference between making a folding knife and making a folding knife. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And what Sam's talking about, those tolerances are the difference.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, the, the, the big thing for me is uh, it's a risk versus reward kind of thing uh, as well. Mm. From a maker's standpoint, from my, from my personal experience in making knives, there are places where you can't skimp on tolerances. And then there are places where it's not necessary mm. to go that extra step. And in like in slip joints, I can understand how it would improve the feel of the the walk and talk of a slip joint, which is what they call the the action of a slip joint. Um, I'm not sure that the investment of extra time without a mill. Like if I had a mill, then it would be a different story. Um, I'm not sure it'd be worth the investment of the extra time and stress in order to increase that little tiny bit of action. Over anything else, and the rubbing on the on the things, I've actually thought about that a little bit more. The blade being high carbon steel, and I'm hoping that the blade is getting used. It's going to get scratched up. It's going to get dinged. It's going to get patinated. It's going to have all kinds of roughness on it. So therefore, uh, the the marking on the ricasso or the tang is not actually going to worry me too much.
1: Yeah, it is um, a very that's a personal preference thing. Yeah, so uh, it, it's a very
0: contentious subject, and I can see both sides and. I want to make a slip joint with washers just to try it out. Oh yeah, um, and then and, and then
1: discard them at the end.
0: <laughs> well, no, no, I'll probably leave them in. If I'm going to go to the trouble of making them, I'm going to leave them in. Oh no, you're not going to um, have
1: to make them. I'm saving you that pain. I'm sending you some.
0: <laughs> oh well, okay, that makes it easier. Yeah, but um, no, for from like from my personal approach, I'm more of a traditionalist, so I'm going to go with the traditional approach anyway. Uh, and wear the where the fact that I don't have washers in my in my slip joints. When it comes to friction folders, um, I just think it adds that next level of like unnecessaryness in, in the build. Uh, when friction folders, then they're, they're normally called farmers knives or penny knives. Um. And there's a reason for it. You don't really see a lot of high engineering in friction folders. That doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't have to. Unless it's me making them. (laughs) Well, yeah, Alex (laughs) made probably one of the prettiest friction folders I have ever seen. Like, I would have been proud to own that knife. I (laughs) I really wanted
1: to keep it so
2: badly.
0: (laughs) I sincerely thought about taking money out of my loan to buy it because (laughs) I wanted it. Like, you know, the thing is that I was legitimately in love with that knife. And, you know, the, there is a reason that we go to the extra trouble of doing those kinds of things to our knives. Um, and yeah, I absolutely think that there's a uh, worthwhile in, you know, getting close tolerances and all that kind of stuff. I just don't think in a friction folder that washes or adding anything that would be advantageous in the long run to the friction folder
1: one I have I have one last point okay and I didn't have this point when we first had our discussion about this this is a point that I've gotten since I have been doing because I've been working with fol- uh, folders of all different descriptions I've been doing a lot of work to perfect my pin peening recently because mm-hmm. I'd always been able to peen pins but until you start doing this sort of thing you start realizing and Sam would have found this when he did his um, the peened bolsters. Yeah, there's a difference between peening and peening and I'm trying oh, yeah. I'm trying to get to the second one um, and so I've made myself the special pin peening anvil I'm actually going to be breaking my rule and making a hammer so that I have a proper pin peening <laughs> hammer that's more suited to the style that I do, like I've been really dialing in the peening and you can see on my Instagram I'm like showing off when I get really proud of something that I've done that just disappears into the work and all that sort of thing um, you should be able to have better control over the amount of friction if you're looking for pinch friction on a friction folder you should be able to have better control over how much friction you get from that pinch through the peening if you are using washers because the actual contact point that is happening on the inside is a smaller surface area which means you will be able to dial in how much friction you're talking about um, much more accurately than if you're pressing against the entire sides of the Ricasso of the knife. Is it hmm. still the Ricasso on a the the pivot point area of a folding that knife? The, blade? the pivot point is called the tang. It's still called the tang? Okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So the the, the point where the, the hole gets drilled through that little nub is called the tang. It's a, just
1: a nubby tang yep that's it it's yeah. a very nubby tang because yeah when if you're just you know you're relying your friction isn't coming from you know cleverly filed down notches or anything like i was talking about. it's just literally just the pinching of the the scales hitting the sides of the knife you're getting a lot of surface area contact uh if you're going right against the tang and the ricasso because the knife's the scales are going to uh, extend up into the ricasso area just some way um, mm-hmm. and so if you actually reduce that surface area then the pressure of the the, the tightness of the pin is actually what's going to dictate the um the amount of friction that's being caused so you would actually have a better more controllable um avenue there by using washers that's getting mm. that's getting pretty fine detail though like I, i'm really enjoying the, the part of uh, folding knife making that i'm enjoying the most is the feel getting the feel right make making knives look nice i can do i'm happy with my ability to make knives look nice but making them feel nice when it's a mechanical operation that's the thing that i'm really nerding out about and so i think about this sort of thing
0: you know it's it's really funny because for for so long you were kind of the workhorse knife maker oh yeah you were the the it doesn't have to be super pretty just has to work yeah And I was the, it needs to be super fine detailed, and everything needs to be perfect, and, you know, like, millimeter accuracy and all this kind of stuff.
1: And now you're like, I need to finish these 38 knives.
0: (laughs) Well, it's not just that. So, for me, it's a difference of approach in ideal. So, for me, folding knives... I have never really been art knives uh, in my world. Like, the thing is, I collect folding knives, and I love the look of them and all that kind of stuff. Well, it's, the, slip ul- joint it's
1: the ultimate practical knife, a folding exactly. knife. Exactly.
0: It, it's the knife that you carry. It's the knife that's in your pants all the time. Like, you know, it's its the knife that you know, every farmhand and all that kind of stuff carries in order to do their work. And so, for me, function is above everything. And the form kind of takes a little bit of a backseat. And when you come to function, it's a matter of uh, investment versus outcome, Mm. right? Like I, for for me, I don't, I can feel a nice snap in a, in a friction folder or a, you know, in a a nice slip joint. Uh, I've got some fairly expensive slip joints that have an amazing walk and talk. Um, And it just comes down to the interaction between the blade and the the liner material rather than with washers. But it's still a very functional knife that hasn't got a lot of more a lot more pieces than what's visible to the the eye, um, and so yeah, I, I think that I part of me just abhors the overcomplication. But I, you know, I, it's it's just one of those traditionalist ideals of mine. When it comes to fu- fixed blades, on the other hand, I am all for overcomplexity, yeah. which is it. This is more of a, 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 like, a not a jab at you, more of an internal kind of analysis of myself. As as we're having this conversation, I'm kind of weirded out by the fact that I'm not so hung up on the idea of, you know, like, super fine-fitting folders. Wait wait till you start uh, making them.
1: Well, see... It's a a deep rabbit hole, man. You're going to love it.
0: Of course, the other thing is that I haven't really ever planned on being a folding knife maker. Um, Neither did I. I I do... (laughs) I do want to make slip joints. I'm not sure that I want to make them uh, for sale. Like, I, I'm not sure I want to make them uh, to sell. Right. Uh, I think I have too much of a slip joint fanaticism to make them to sell
1: and not keep every second one that I make. I have Yeah, I've wanted to keep everything that I've made. It's a problem. Because <laughs> I um, like you collector knives and most of them are folders.
2: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah well, I mean, that's it. I don't really collect fixed blades. I, I collect folders, mm. and so I make fixed blades because it's easier for me to let them go. <laughs> you know, I love them dearly, but, you know, it's easier for me to kind of, at the end of the day, go, yeah, okay, this one's out the door.
1: Poor Ben emailed in thinking, oh, that'll be a quick answer, though, you know, Sam will say this, i <laughs> so that, we'll move on. We've turned it into the topic of the week. We're, well, like, 45 I mean, minutes into the show.
0: <laughs> it's one of the first subjects that you and I have ever actually disagreed on. Yeah in any serious way yeah uh, and it's it's not that we disagree in a way that's like no you're wrong no I'm wrong yeah, I'm right because no, we're not that of kind of, a, of person <laughs> well but it's two totally different approaches to the same project or to the same subject yeah and I think that's why I find it so interesting that's why I like talking about it because it is such a it's such a varied topic
1: well people need to realize in a general in a more global sense than just knives that it's by having discussions with people whose opinions differ to yours like not arguments but discussions that's how you learn that's how your mind gets opened up and how you maybe see perspectives that you hadn't thought of or considered That's, that's how we grow as people
0: yeah that's it I mean like being able to see other people's perspectives and you know the only other way you, you the only way you learn other people's perspectives is by having conversations with them Yeah. and if you refuse to hear ideas that don't match your own then you're only ever going to think that you're always right and that's not a good way to go through life
1: no but anyway
0: yeah thank you for the question <laughs> <laughs> I knew that one was going to go
1: for a long time. Oh yeah. Well, our next email is from Francesco Mucci. Ah, Mucci, how are you know? And he's an ABS journeyman Francesco mm. Mucci, which I should say is the co- he's corrects title. Um, He says, hi, mates, I was just listening to past episodes as I quickly make up from just recently discovering the podcast and therefore going through all of them from the very first one. On episode 87, the one I'm listening to right now, a listener inquired about where he could find resources on armor making. The book I studied when I was starting that craft was Techniques of Medieval Armor Reproduction by Brian R. Price. It's a very in-depth manual explaining techniques and styles for every single piece. Unfortunately, it doesn't look like Paladin Press is printing it anymore, but it can be found used on Amazon for around 150 to 170 US dollars. Uh, it has good historical infos about styles and techniques as well. Very well worth the price, in my opinion. Thank you for all the work, and sorry for the lengthy email, Francesco. That is awesome. Now, Hopefully, that listener is listening right now.
0: Yeah, thanks, Francesca. And that's not a lengthy email in comparison to some of the ones we get.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and you should hear some of the answers. <laughs> oh, <well>, I <it> <laughs> All right. Next email. Uh, Brian Ward he says Good day to you gentlemen Thank you very much for the Forgecast Just starting out this podcast answers a lot of questions I didn't know I needed to ask And you are both a treat to listen to My buddy and I were building up our setup In my garage and are ready to Set out on learning the basics We purchased some rail spikes off eBay Figuring this was a cheap way to learn Heat, hammering, grinding and so on I understand the metal likely won't serve In the long run but as practice The idea seemed good to me my question is this, what tips do you have for working on spikes that you would advise we focus on as we learn all of these new skills? Thanks again, cheers to you both, Brian. That sounds awesome. That sounds like a really good starting project. Rail spikes are they're tough oh, when, yeah. when you're not used to hammering. It feels like you will never draw those things out.
0: <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because, you know, like, and, and it does depend on the spike, but uh, a mm. lot of the time they will have a little bit more carbon than mild steel. One thing that um, a lot
1: of people don't realize is there are different types of rail spike, different grades. Some of them oh. for high speed rail, some of them for low speed rail, some of them are old, so old that they are just wrought iron. And some yeah. of them are uh, all different... Um, Uh, alloys of steel and and you can tell you can learn how to read the numbers on them things like that when they have numbers to sort of get Mm -hmm. more information but it is a little bit of a crapshoot sometimes
0: oh yeah i mean i bought a big box of them from the u.s uh ages ago and uh they're all hardenable to some degree uh i've used them to make tomahawks and stuff like that and they harden up enough to make good throwing tomahawks without you know holding a stupidly fine edge um, you know, they're, they're such a universal thing and, and they get crapped on a lot because, you know, I think everyone's made railroad spike stuff. So now everyone craps on people who make railroad spike stuff because they're like, oh, that's
1: old hat. I've done it. So therefore no one else needs to. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, if, if you're but- looking for tips, I would actually recommend if you're going to be doing a lot of work with railroad spikes, I would say, make yourself two sets of tongs one to hold the spike by the head and one to hold the spike by the tail. Um, and it's good tong-making practice anyway. Uh, and then use those tongs to actually forge out um, two of the spikes into two different styles of tomahawk, like Sam was saying. One yep. of the styles make it so that the pommel... is it, No, the pole, sorry, of the tomahawk is a intact head of the spike. Yep. And the other one flip it so that the um, head of the rail spike actually gets flattened out into the blade.
0: Yeah, and so you can practice drawing on, like drawing out on the head to draw down the beard, but you can also practice upsetting on the other end Mm -hmm. to upset enough material to get an edge on that side. And punching and drifting
1: eyes as well. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, and you can do stuff like twisting. Um, Railroad Spikes makes great stake turners and stuff like that. I made a really fun stake turner um for a friend of mine um out of a railroad spike and that that's a lot of drawing out but it's a a good way to practice that swing um and you you can make stuff like letter openers with them quite easily um
1: they're also very universally recognized by people who are not smiths so if you're looking to make a little bit of money at markets or something like that things made out of rail spikes are usually quite popular sellers
0: uh, yeah one of my friends uh Made a whole bunch of coat racks, which is just like literally a wood board with some bent railroad spikes on it. Mm-hmm. You know, with the with the spike head being the end of the hook, uh, and he just punched a couple of holes in it and put some you know bolts in them, and he sold hundreds of the bloody things. Yeah,
1: because <laughs> people, people love that kind of stuff. Yeah, oh, it's rustic and, it's like, and kitschy. I like it.
0: Well, it's the same thing with horseshoes and stuff like that. Yeah. You can bend them into hearts and sell them for you know ten bucks a piece, no problem. That's it. Um, so, yeah, no, definitely uh, well worth the uh, the investment to just, you know, try out different stuff, chiseling, drifting, punching, twisting, you know, drawing out, upsetting. You can do pretty much anything to a railroad spike. Yeah. Well, Even try out heat treatment, you know, forge out a blade and see if you can get it to harden. Make, Maybe a, fric-
1: make a friction folder. Yeah. <laughs>
0: put washes on only it <laughs> a railroad spike. or you could do what i did and make an entire
1: sword out of a railroad he spike. did and that video is still up on your youtube channel isn't it yeah it's a live stream it went for like four he hours forge I think. welded multiple rail spikes together and then <laughs> made the guard out it was bonkers it was so yep. cool forge
0: welded them together to make the blade and then forged a guard out of it and also made a handle out of it yeah so, yeah, it's, it's an entire railroad spike
1: sword. You can make anything out of rail spikes. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Anyway, thanks for writing in, Brian. Our next email comes from Steve Ellis, Red Snake Forge. Uh, he hey, says, Steve. Hey, fellas, two-part question here. Can you please explain the process of an interrupted quench also, would you please lay out the benefits or why one would do an interrupted quench? Thanks and love the show. I always listen to the end because I like the closing song and the laugh always makes me smile no matter what mood I'm in. Fair, Fair enough. Yeah. Alex's laugh is pretty funny.
2: Yuck! <laughs> 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 Yuck,
1: yeah.
0: Um, so interrupted quenches. Um, yeah, they're, they're a thing. Um,
1: interrupted quench in my world is that I'm all geared up to do the quench and my phone rings. Anybody else get that happen? <laughs> 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 oh, I've had that happen. People yes. come and visit and you're about to bloody put in the oil. Yeah.
0: Oh, the worst Yeah. The worst one is when you're actually heating it up to get ready for the quench. And you're like someone's m- trying to talk watching to you. it and observing it. Yeah. <laughs> That's and then it. they get all annoyed because you're not paying attention. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. So interrupted quench. Uh, normally, it's called an interrupted water quench um, because, like, interrupted quench would kind of connote that you were quenching it in any medium. Normally, when you're referring to an interrupted quench, you're using water and oil, mm. um, and always water first,
2: <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> never water second. And I don't understand why people would. But um, anyway. Interrupted quenches are used, uh, normally on shallow hardening steels. So low alloy, high carbon steels, normally for, um, make them Uh, and the reason for that is because shallow hardening steels tend to be fast quench steels. They tend to be really high speed quench steels. Uh, it's unnecessary if you have a really decent high speed quench oil, like Parks 50 or Horton's Q or Horton's K or, you know, one of those. Uh, high-speed quench oils, it's really not that necessary. But in the event that you don't have it, it's the only option to get that super high-speed quench to get that really nice hard line between the hard steel and the soft steel in the, in the, um, Hamon. If you use a medium-speed quench oil when you're trying to make Hamon, what ends up happening is that uh, it tends to creep, the Hamon the tends to creep in under the, um... Under the clay, or the clay holds on to so much heat that the hormone actually creeps downwards towards the edge, which can be really bad. Mm. Um, so, basically, the process of an interrupted quench is the same as you would do for a normal quench, in that you're heating the blade up to non-magnetic. Normally, you'd have clay on it, or you know, you'd have some form of gum, gum, or something like that on it to create a hormone. Uh, you go into the water. I normally do two seconds, and then you'd go into preheated. Or quench oil whether that's medium speed high speed doesn't really matter but it needs to be preheated at least 60 degrees celsius Uh, and basically the process of that is to prevent the rapid crystallization of martensite in the steel to stop it from cracking
1: Mm. because i think at this uh, point it's important to um explain to people that what a quench is is a rapid cooling down from a hot state to a cold state that's what it is yes And different mediums make that happen at different speeds, which produce different results. Water is one of the most aggressive. But if you dip it into the water and pull it out, it doesn't just cool the entire thing all evenly. It's the cooling starts from the outside and starts Mm -hmm. to move in as the heat is bled out. So by going into the water first and then pulling it out, you're not quenching the inside, the core of your knife straight away. You're quenching the outside. The rest of the yeah. cooling happens in a different environment.
0: Exactly. And and the big thing to remember is that steel expands when heated. Mm. Right? Like that's that's fairly well known is that metal expands when it's heated. And what happens when you quench a steel is that it actually freezes it in that expanded state. Um so, that's why katanas curve when they're quenched, is because the spine doesn't harden, so it shrinks back to its original it's size. Because it's clay. Yeah, because it's clayed. Because the clay uh, holds on to heat long enough to prevent it from hardening. Uh, whereas the quenched steel, the steel that was uh, less clayed, you know, normally it has a very thin layer of clay, uh, hardens and freezes in that hardened state, in that expanded state, and so therefore it basically gets pulled back on itself um the process of the interrupted quench slows down the shrinking of the of the non hardened section so that the uh hardened section isn't put under so much stress because in the in a, in any blade where you're hardening one section and not hardening the other The unhardened section is trying to pull The hardened section Mm. It's trying to rip it apart And in my heat treating um, series On my YouTube uh, channel You can actually see a blade that I edge quenched Where the, the unhardened section Actually ripped away Tore away from the hardened edge um, and that's because, yeah, the, the metals are cooling at two different rates, and one is shrinking and one is not.
1: I actually found a way you can test this. Uh, if, you, if you want to see it happen without blowing apart a knife, like Sam's video is really good, and I highly recommend you watch it, but nobody wants to forge out a knife to watch it be destroyed. Uh, in, <laughs> instead, draw a, a, a long taper about three or four inches long on a bit of, say, 10 mil round, and then form it into a scroll. That goes all the way back around itself. Heat the whole thing up, and then into a water, into your main tank, just quench the uh, the the roundest part of the scroll. So the actual point's still sticking out, and you'll see that point move like the hand on a clock. Yeah, yeah,
0: it'll wiggle around all over the place. Yeah, it
1: gives you an idea of just how much steel moves in the quench. You can't see it because it's under the liquid level, but it is moving a great deal. Anyone who's um, made a set of tongs
0: and hot-riveted them mm. and then quenched them move- while moving the handles will be familiar with the sensation of the handles pushing themselves apart yeah. while you're quenching it. And that's that's the material actually trying to rip itself apart <laughs> <laughs> while it cools. So, yeah, um, the interrupted quench gives you the advantage of the high-speed quench, but it also slows down the cooling of the spinal area so that it doesn't tear itself apart or crack the hardened section.
1: Mm. Hopefully that answers your question, Steve. I'm sure Sam will yeah. uh, probably answer any further questions you have if you if you shoot him a message,
0: mate. steal questions, I'll answer them every day, all day.
1: He'll do it literally any sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't tra-
0: tested that theory, <laughs> but there is a possibility.
1: <laughs> and our final email for today's long list of emails is from Matt Catala Cataldo Cataldo. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, i'm terrible with names great with faces but um he says hello Forgecast. first thanks for all the info you put out super helpful getting to learn about different aspects of forging since i'm just starting out with blacksmithing one question about forge welding the way i understand it the biggest risks or dangers to your billet when forge welding are internal stresses due to thermal strain and inclusions that said are there any major dangers to forge welding the same kind of steel to itself, aside from inclusions? It sounds like modern steels can realign grain structure based on temperature, which would yield a homogeneous billet as long as you have properly cleaned and fluxed your joint. I'm particularly curious for making hardy tools since I don't have access to a press or power hammer, and reducing the cross-section of that much is really intimidating. Thanks, Matt. You're talking about a harder billet.
0: Yeah, pretty much. Just just basically building up a, the same material. Yeah. Much like Tamahagane is built up. Um, you will never get a homogenous billet from forge welding.
1: Forge welds are always going to be a potentially weak spot. They're never one piece of steel.
0: Yeah, uh, and that's why the Japanese katana has a harder, the, the, the pattern on the blade. Even though it's all made of... Basically the same material because it's all come out of the same block of uh, Tamahagane. The forge weld lines will denote normally the differentiation in carbon. It's the same with cable Damascus. The reason that cable Damascus exists is because uh, during the forging process, before you forge weld the cable together, the outside of those cable wires decarburizes. And so that's what causes those white lines between the cable pieces, because it's the thin layer of decarburization between the two steels. Mm. Uh, So the weld line will always be a weak point. You can forge weld material together to create a large billet of stuff. Like, you can forge weld mild steel in a giant stack and make a big hunk of mild steel. It's still going to have forge welds in it, but, you know, like, it's going to be a big hunk of mild steel. The issue I would run into is that you're going to end up working big pieces of material either way. Yes. So while I understand that working large cross sections of material can be really intimidating, you're not going to save yourself any time by forge welding. Mm. Uh, unless you're talking about like forge welding a jump weld, like by forge welding a hardy stake onto a big block of steel to create like a an anvil block, uh, an anvil block, mm. that might be worthwhile if you have a big enough forge. But honestly, you could stick weld those two things together and they'd hold together just as well.
1: Fun little fact, actually, Roy Adams did a video on this a while back when he was doing his um, sort of deep dive into various forge welds on his YouTube channel, which I highly recommend if you're into forge welding. It like a fascinating series that he did. Mm. Um, one of the, And he's really good at he's it. He's <laughs> really good at it. And he doesn't use much flux. Um, <laughs> he did a, uh, an accordion weld, which is something that is very old school because if you had something like a, a gate rail or a fence rail or something uh, and you needed a lump of steel at the end of it but you only had the flat bar you could actually sort of zigzag and then yep. stack it down and do that forge weld and it's sort of technically a harder billet <laughs> i guess because you haven't taken it into multiple pieces of steel it's still just one piece of steel just forge welded back onto itself you know 10 times at once but it's a really great way to add mass to the end of a bar without ever having to work with a second piece because that's the trick with forge welding is getting that second piece or third piece or fourth piece to actually stay in line people use tack welds they use wire they use all sorts of different things but if it's all on the same piece of steel then you don't need to worry about any of that so accordioning accordioning it is a really great way to add mass
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I've, uh, I've done that myself and I've seen it done to create stuff like bolster plates and stuff like that, where you just take a a piece of inch by quarter inch or something like that. And then, you know, fold it up on itself a couple of times to create a a larger stack and then punch a hole through the middle of it to create a bolster plate. Mm. So, um, it can be used in that method, but I'm, you know, in terms of making hardy tools and stuff like that, I don't think that there's an advantage. Yeah.
1: I think maybe what he was talking about was like making a big hot cut and then stacking the pieces almost like the side on profile, you know, like the middle piece would be long and then on top of that would be one shorter so that you'd rather than have to draw a point on a really big thing. I think it's, you know, Sam's right, you're just going to end up working in a big piece of steel anyway.
0: Well, yeah, and if you try and weld something like that, you can going to end up upsetting the smaller blocks really into are, the bigger block yeah. and you're going to end up creating a square block that you're going to have to draw out anyway. That's it, <laughs> so. yeah. Yeah, there's, I don't think there's really a practical way to make a lot of the hardy tooling that you're thinking of.
1: Get a striker.
0: Um, yeah, exactly. Get a striker. Or even, even, if you'd stri- even if you don't have a big sledgehammer, two guys with hammers is better than one guy with a hammer.
1: I have, uh, during striker sessions that I've been doing recently, working down billets, which has inspired me to build a press, um, <laughs> we've used everything from a 16-pound sledgehammer down to a 4-pound hammer with the striker uh, depending on what we're trying to do and trust me when you've got two people hammering on it one person with a a 2.5 pound hammer and one person with a 4 pound hammer with two hands on it you can actually move steel very very neatly and very fast
0: oh yeah I mean um, uh, Flynn Sharp and I drew out an entire Wakazashi with me running a little 4 pound Single-handed sledge with two hands. Yeah, that's that's what we were doing
1: for like, when we were trying to flatten it out and and get it nice and even. Yep. And it, you get remarkable control with a four-pound with two hands on it.
0: Oh yeah, so, um, the light of the weight, the the easier it is to control. Farriers quite regularly use small hammers for their strikers when they're doing stuff like uh, punching the Pritchels for a um, horseshoe. Yeah, there you go. So yeah, no, get a striker. And just work on have, that big steel. Get yourself have, a piece of axle.
1: Yeah. <laughs> have fun with it. Buy, buy them some beers and say, you know, let's have an afternoon. Cook a barbecue. That's what I do. Get some cheese Kranskis going. <laughs> Nobody's going to turn that down.
0: <laughs> but worst case scenario, just work it down by hand. It's actually not as hard as it looks. Um, it just takes a little bit of time.
1: Get it nice and hot.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Hotter the better.
1: Joey Van Der Steeg temperatures. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That, that boy has been doing some amazing stuff oh, with, man. with miniature ambles. He, he I, I, continually amazes me. Mind-blowing, mind-blowing. Need to have another go at trying to get him on the show. Last time we, we almost got him on and then he had to travel for something.
0: Yeah, he went to Belgium
1: to hang out with uh, Philippe yeah, Ponsila. Need to try to get him on again. All right, so with emails out of the way and an hour into the show <laughs> <laughs> let's get on to inspirations of the week sam who has been inspiring you this week
0: so my inspiration of the week um i i had watched a lot of his stuff a while ago but recently kind of picked it up again because he ended up in my recommended feed on youtube um and i actually started watching him back when Alec Steele mentioned him back when Alec was building the viking sword his name is pablo Villa
1: oh he's been my inspiration of the week before He has, yeah. yeah. Um, He's an amazing
0: jeweler. Yes. And um, one of the things that's really been getting me is uh, I've been watching a lot of his videos on YouTube, and recently his production quality has been amazing. Mm -hmm. Like, you would believe that he has a Hollywood budget for his videos. The way that they're put together is amazing. Absolutely. But what was really inspiring for me is that I didn't actually know a lot about Pablo, um... And I'd watched a lot of his stuff about jewellery and stuff like that, but I noticed in one of his most recent videos that he's in a wheelchair. Yeah,
1: yeah. I didn't even know that. Yeah, it, know, like... and it's, it's, it's cool that most people don't realise that. Until yeah. they see that recent video, they don't realise.
0: He's also an Olympic gold medal gold medalist swimmer. That
1: I did not know.
0: Yes, he has two bronze medals and one gold medal in uh, the Paralympics. He was a Spanish uh, swimming right. uh, champion. So That's great. Yeah, he's, he's done so much um, in his life, and he doesn't let anything slow him down, and uh, he's done a couple of videos on his vlog channel talking about you know, not letting his disability get in his way, Yeah, and always striving to you know, try and struggle. He's always trying to struggle. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, he's always trying to find something that frustrates him so that he can overcome it. Uh, and I, I, found that really inspiring cause you know, I've been struggling through with a lot of things, uh, mentally recently with a lot of the projects that I'm taking on. And he was like, he, he was talking about finding value in struggling. If you're not struggling, then you're not learning. Mm. Uh, and so it's, it's helped me kind of come to terms with the fact that I just have to be frustrated sometimes. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but yeah. If you haven't checked out Pablo from the last time we checked, uh, we shouted him out. His name is Pablo Cimdevilla. It's C I M A D E V I L A. I think that's correct. Uh, he's also on Instagram under the same name, and he makes the most incredible jewelry and out of um, the
1: weirdest things.
0: Oh yeah, and he does stuff out of bolts and the guy made of talent. Yeah, he's also worked with some insanely expensive materials. He recently made a uh, one of the world's most expensive rings, which had a five-and-a-half-carat rutilated yellow diamond mm-hmm. in it. And then he diamond-encrusted the rest of the ring. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, it was insane. Um, so, yeah, no, definitely worth checking out. Even if you're not into jewellery, if you're into making stuff, or you're into, you know, like... The process. The artist. The process. Mm. Watch his videos because his videography is amazing. He does such a good job of
1: showing what that process is.
0: Not only that, but they're just like the music is great, the angles are great, the lighting is amazing, the quality is just mind blowing. Like, I can't believe that it's just a YouTube channel. (laughs) 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 Uh, But yeah, no, definitely well worth a check out. Who's been inspiring you,
1: Alex? Uh, actually, f- funny because uh, he emailed in the show. We we mm. we just read an email from him, <laughs> which I thought was funny. Um, my inspiration this week has been um, Francesco Francesco Mucci. All right. um, as I mentioned earlier, he's an ABS journeyman smith. He's also a forged in fire contestant. Um, right. I can't remember what season he was on. I think it was. I'm going to say four. Probably wrong. Um, but he goes by uh, Mucci underscore Damascus underscore blades on Instagram Mucci is M-U-C-I um, his folding knives are just exquisite there's no other word I can think of to describe them <laughs> they are beautiful they have flowing beautiful lines that conform to the golden ratio They uh, that his Finish that he gets on the scales is phenomenal. The attention to detail in every aspect of his blades is incredible. He opts for um, non-standard—well, they are standard, but lesser-known um, spring tensioning methods in his mm. lock bars and things. And it's just like it's everything is thought out. It's meticulous. It's done carefully. And on top of all that. I've been chatting to him a lot lately. He's just a stellar guy. Just
0: yeah, I, I I funny found it funny. I just I just recently I just checked while we were talking, um, and I hadn't actually followed him back. But he's been following me for a while and commenting on my videos. So uh, commenting on my photos. So I'm I'm really sad that I haven't. Been following him. <laughs> that's a journeyman. <laughs> that's what change. you're
1: aspiring to, Sam. You got to look up to people like this.
0: Oh, I know he actually messaged us about the pin pinging anvil yes a while he back.
1: did yeah and he he ended up making one and um, we had an in-depth discussion about pins in um, slip joint folders and and um, like Sam and I just had this whole big thing about washers or not um, my and Sam's views on stop pins in slip joints differ from Francesco's but this is what I'm saying. He's just a stellar guy. He's just like, that's cool. I just like doing it this way. Whereas a lot of other people would be like, no, you should do this or you should do that. But Francesco is not. He's just this really laid back guy who just nerds out about knives just like we do and makes just killer work. It's just Absolutely. so nice. Like one day, one day I hope to own one of his slip joint folders. Just we, sh- we have to get him on the show. I would love to get him on the show, and he will eventually. If now he's a listener of the show. He will eventually get this episode, and he'll <laughs> yeah. maybe, hopefully he'll hear it before we invite him. But maybe he won't. I'd love to get he's him on. Just back on this talk well. about folders, and we've talked about folders before on the show, but not with a guest. And obviously, you know, journeyman doesn't just fall in your lap. Like journeyman, no. journeyman takes work. Uh, and to be a journeyman who specializes in folders <laughs> is a special level of attention to detail. Pain. Yeah, he must <laughs> love pain. They they actually, like, in
0: the uh, ABS journeyman, um, like, handbook, they recommend not making folders yep. for your journeyman test. Like, do not. Yeah. Because um, it's hard to cut through it. the
1: tubo for. Yeah uh more for the judging i i know i'm 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 but doing a funny sam
0: no i suppose you're not funny <laughs> sorry <Is>
1: it? <laughs> no, that's it you know
0: i gotta be the funny one because you're the talented one. <laughs>
1: oh, here it goes uh, but yeah he's um yeah he's been my inspiration of the week for obvious reasons he's actually been my inspiration of the past probably three weeks um but yeah he gets this week
0: <laughs> well, Lars- my apologies to Francesco for not following him back earlier, but uh, yes.
1: He, he, he just, yeah, great work. Check him out. He's on Instagram. I'm not sure <laughs> if he is elsewhere. Uh, the quality of the photos and things that he puts out makes me wonder whether or not he has other things, but at least follow him on Instagram, and then you'll be able to get any relevant links from there. And we may have him on the show soon if he agrees to come on, um, and then he can tell you himself. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so with our copious emails and inspirations out of the way, it is finally time for Tool Time. Tool Time Time is brought to you by our favorite bladesmithing toy store, Creative Man. Honestly, my two most visited websites in my search history are Google, to quickly look up all the terminology that Sam uses, and creativeman.com.au. Their beautifully designed online store will get you the knife-making supplies you need right to your door quick as a flash. So visit them at creativeman.com.au and tell them the Forgecast sent you. Yes. So our tool of the week this week is vermiculite, found commonly in the gardening section of your hardware store. Although I have recently learned, very difficult to find in certain countries. Yes, yeah, apparently so. Like, curiously difficult to find. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's strange sometimes. Yeah, but vermiculite is sort of like an expanded volcanic rock um, Mm -hmm. that is very light, almost like polystyrene beads. Um, Yeah,
0: think think very low-density pumice. Yeah, but it
1: holds heat like nothing else. It holds heat at a crazily insane level, like a refractory. Better. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it, it practically is a refractory, given that it's a you know a, a heat resistant rock, yeah. f- containing mostly air, and it
1: is a core ingredient in my four part um, refractory mixture, homemade refractory mixture. For that reason, but what mm. we have it as the tool of the week for is that uh, a, the the basic process of annealing steel, most steels, is to actually bring it up to a good you know, like a, a Curie temperature, and then let it cool as slowly as possible. And nice. I mean glacially, ironically, slowly. Um, <laughs> some people like to do that by having it in the forge and then when it gets to temperature, just turn the forge off and then just let it yep. sit there. Especially um, at the end of a long day. Yeah, but most of, the, most of us need to keep working. And what I have is a bucket of vermiculite that I bury the knife in. Now, if I have... I'm talking just a twenty-centimeter knife, full tang knife. If I bury that in vermiculite, I could come back two hours later, and that thing's still too hot to touch. Yeah, this is how slowly it allows heat to dissipate. Um, so for it is
0: fantastically useful. Oh,
1: so for backyard annealing, and annealing is a phenomenally useful part of knife making and heat treatment of steels. Um, Almost completely necessary in most cases. Yeah, as soon as you leave the beginner realm, you've got to just start being able to do this sort of thing you know, nice and easy. It's also, with certain steels, makes it much easier to drill and shape and... yeah because certain steels with your higher
0: alloy steels annealing cycles are incredibly useful yeah
1: so being able to do that in like a backyard setup when you don't have heat treatment kilns and all that sort of thing and all the time in the world vermiculite is a really cheap thing because a big old bag of it that's enough to fill a bucket is stupid cheap it's like eight dollars it's really crazy cheap and there's no reason not to have it to be honest uh, at a pinch, if you can't get vermiculite, perlite will also work. It's just not as good. Yeah, no, vermiculite's definitely the, the way to go if you, if you can get it. Yeah. So that being said, that moves us into our topic of the week at one hour, 20 minutes into the show. <laughs> <laughs> we'll,
0: we'll try and make it quick. Yeah. <laughs> Um, not, not for our listeners, because I know our listeners
1: love it when we have longer episodes. Yeah, that's but, uh, right. Alex needs to get to bed. Yeah, it's past midnight here now. Um, <laughs> yep. But we are talking about having redundancies in your equipment for when things go wrong. What would you do if you had to get a knife finished and your grinder just shat itself? Or your forge died? Or anything went wrong with a major piece of equipment that you rely on? Would you just stop
0: Mm. now I mean, this is a question mostly for more professional uh knife makers and blacksmiths and that kind of people thing. with if you're a expectations hobbyist, you- on their time <laughs> yeah you know if you're a
1: hobbyist you can
0: normally just stop start-
1: that being said a lot of people and we have discussed this with uh, all the listener emails that we get a lot of people blacksmithing and bladesmithing is important to them in their lives and it's a whole reason for slogging through the workday to be able to get in in and do this. So you don't want to have to necessarily just stop for two weeks while you're waiting for a a new VFD to arrive or a new uh, bag of refractory to turn up or or what have you. So you need to be able to have redundancies or have an understanding of your equipment enough to be able to uh, get make-do fixes in place for if things go wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes those are skill sets rather than physical tools. So, how many of you out there would be able to put blade bevels in place with a file if you had to? I mean, that is that's more of a skill than you'd think. Oh yeah,
0: yeah, yeah! It's definitely, definitely a skill. Uh, if especially if you haven't got a jig already set up for it, it's uh, definitely more of a skill.
1: If you have just finished a high end, and I'm talking proper like high level of skill, high end 240 layer Damascus billet, you know, turned into a, a uh, what's what's uh, Jason Knight's knife shape? What's it called? Oh, the harpoon. Yes. Yeah, fighter. He's got a name for. It. I can't remember what it's called. I have no idea. But um, you've just done something like that, like a big piece, and you it's all finished and everything, but you have not yet cut the edge onto it, the cutting edge. You've got it down to, the you know, 0.3 or whatever, and you're ready to go, but then your grinder just craps itself. Are you comfortable at that point in your project going at that edge with a file or a stone? Are you confident in your skills to be able to apex that edge ready for sharpening? Yeah, can you
0: sharpen freehand? Yeah,
1: exactly. (laughs) So these are the things that you need to consider if you are either relying on your um, uh, forging or knife making for your income, or maybe it's a side hustle that the income really helps, or maybe it's just that you've got to get out there and forge like our like our girl catch. You just got to do it. Yeah, what do you do when things go wrong? What do you do when things break?
0: And sometimes redundancies don't necessarily have to be tooling. Like for instance not many of us can afford to buy two set two by 72 grinders No, and most of us don't need two two by 72 grinders unless we're doing classes or unless we have specific setups in mind um and so when the grinder goes down if you haven't got blades already ready for handling or ready for hand sanding and stuff like that it's a real kick in the pants and i know that because i had my grinder go down last year The big thing for me is always having a, like a preliminary stock, Mm. right? A bunch of knives that are on their way to being complete. Have a
1: cycle in your work.
0: Yeah. And uh, I treat it as part of my practice. I just forge blades whenever I'm bored and I don't know what I want to do, or if I just want to forge something because I've not forged anything in weeks, I'll forge a bunch of blades, profile grind them, bevel grind them, heat treat them, and then they'll just sit there for months they're not specific projects. They're not projects that I'm planning on finishing anytime soon. They're there for when I want to work on something or they're there for when I haven't got the tools to work on them. Otherwise. Yeah. Right. Like if, if, if when my, when my grinder went down, I had like 20 blades that I could just immediately pick up and start working on.
1: Um, (laughs) well, one thing that I, I, I've been binge watching Forged in Fire, uh, recently because it doesn't just, Uh, naturally occur on television in australia Um, so (laughs) i've been binge watching it Uh, and one thing that i notice is the number of smiths who groan and say i don't know i don't know how to use this when they do a um, solid fuel forge episode yeah now if your gas forge goes down maybe you run out of gas maybe it's as simple as that and you have no ability to get more gas maybe it's that Uh, your refractory blows through finally or your forge floor collapses or something stops you from being able to use your gas forge you should be able to if you let's say you have to get something forged you have on a time limit or you've got an order or whatnot or you just absolutely you need to forge you should be able to make a forge the medieval way dig a trench Mm. in your backyard if you have to and you can you can make something that will work but it's actually shocking to find out how many blacksmiths who have been doing it for a while actually don't know how to run a charcoal or coal forge. Not it. only how to run one, but how to build one, how they actually work. <laughs> they, they see a forge as a thing where you turn the ball valve and light it and that's, it's on. That's it. they don't know any more than that they they wouldn't even be able to tell you how the burner works in their gas forge but understanding all of that and we've gone into understanding the why in the past understanding those whys allows you to have those redundancies for if you need to have a fallback and like sam said not everybody's going to need one like if you're if you're just a hobbyist and it's just a bit of fun that you do you can completely ignore this section the podcast has gone long enough already (laughs) But if you, but if you are somebody who is doing this for their living, if you are somebody who is, um, doing this for an expected income, if you, um, are using it as form of therapy, it can be a massive kick in the pants when a major part of your workflow craps itself.
0: Yep. Absolutely. I mean, I, I haven't used my, my solid fuel forges in like over a year now, But I still have them there and I still have enough coal to run them for a day Mm. because I know that if I need a forge (laughs) and the gas forges go down or I run out of gas or whatever, or I can't get gas for whatever reason, I have a solid fuel forge that I can still use.
1: Yeah. And you know how to use it.
0: Yeah. And having that redundancy means that I'm never really at risk of not being able to forge something if I need to.
1: Um, I have files and I know how to use them. (laughs) <laughs> and it may it may not even be a forge. Um, what would think about this? What would you do if you needed to make Damascus, but your welder died? Mm. Would you be able to do it? There is a technique. There are multiple techniques on how to do it. But would you be able to? Do you know how? You know, it is um, do you know how to get the bevels onto a blade if you if you had to forge them?
2: <laughs>
1: a lot of people don't it's no it's true it's a it's a technique it's a whole whole school of technique and there's multiple ways of doing it you know you're gonna pinch me you're gonna pull them you know or push mm. them in or, or pull them out you know there's there's certain hammers that lend themselves better to doing that do you have them in your collection uh if you um as simple as this if your hammer handle broke have you ever rehandled handled the hammer yeah and if you haven't you should you should you absolutely should because these are redundancies that are in place. And like we said, sometimes it's a skill set like being able to rehandle a hammer um, or being able to make a tool on the fly with basic fabrication techniques. Uh, you might mm-hmm. desperately need to make sure that something is as flat as possible because you're on your last belt, <laughs> you're on your last 36 <laughs> grit, and you know that it's going to be a, a couple of weeks before the order gets in. Uh, unless you order them from Creative Man, he gets in them really quick um yeah that's true and building a flatter is a really quick way to do that if you have a known flat surface on one of your anvils um Mm. so do you have the ability to make one of those in a safe way like if you're going to take a like a little clubby three pound clubby hammer and weld some flat you know half inch flat plate on the underside of it do you know that you need to soften the back of that the struck end so that you don't kill yourself
0: I was actually surprised at how many people haven't made punches or chisels.
1: Mm.
0: Well, there's quite a few people that I know that haven't made punches or chisels, and they've been forging for quite a while. and And it, it shocked me because they'd bought them or they'd been given them by other people. Yeah. If you don't know how to make punches and chisels, like if you're if you're getting into heat treating, like knives and stuff like that, I would highly suggest practicing around chisels. With heat treating. Punches and chisels. And yeah, we talked absolutely.
1: about uh, only a couple episodes ago when somebody said what was the basic tools yeah. that you'd recommend and, and slitting chisel was Sam and I's first thing for both <laughs> of us. <so> <laughs> yep. Make a slitting chisel boy. <laughs> Get on it. Yeah, exactly. Um, for so many reasons. But those redundancies are things that you have to consider if you are relying on this. For whatever reason you may be relying on it for, both Sam and I have been caught with our proverbial and literal pants down. Um <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know when you're talking, thinking about for me, <laughs> because uh, VFDs crap themselves, forges yep. break, anvils shear in half, ha- <laughs> hammer handles shatter, fi- yep, all the time. files snap, yep. and all of these tools you can't. No, no regular person can afford to have. It's like, oh, let me just go to my cupboard and get a new. kilowatt VFD out of it, you know, from my spares
0: (laughs) and having, having spare stuff is always good. Like, um, safety equipment. Mm. If you have a first aid kit, where's your second one? Uh, if you have a fire extinguisher, where's your second Mm -hmm. one? Uh, if you have safety glasses, where's your second set? Mm -hmm. Uh, if you have a auto darkening welding helmet, where's your standard dark helmet? Mm -hmm. Because, Anything that's powered by batteries can run out of batteries. That's it. Um, So, like, anything that runs on batteries, either you need more batteries or a spare battery or you need the version of that that doesn't require batteries. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, I I have a a manual dark helmet. I have, you know, two first aid kits in my workshop. I have uh, one fire extinguisher in the corner of my workshop and another one in the house. Um, I have like 15 sets of safety glasses, mainly because I run classes. But, you know, I would also have more if I needed them anyway. Um, But yeah, having having redundancies in not only your tooling, but
1: also your safety equipment and, you know, that kind of stuff really helps. Yeah, because you do not want a fire to start and you think, all right, I'm on top of this. Grab the extinguisher, squeeze it and nothing happens. A little (laughs) comes out. That's yeah. not a good day. You want to be able to reach for the fire blanket that you know is going to work. Yeah, exactly. I
0: I um, actually had an experience like that on the farm. I set fire to a pot of petrol.
1: As you do. You uh, just keep pots of was, petrol around.
0: Well, I was using the petrol to degrease uh, bearings because I was doing the pressure wheels on a um, seeding uh, track. Right. And I had to pop bearings out, degrease the bearings, and then replace the bearings and all that kind of stuff. And one of the things was in degreasing was using a, a pot of petrol. And uh, I had a punch that uh, had shattered. The end had shattered off a little bit uh, while I was punching out a bearing. So I decided to reheat treat the bearing, uh, the reheat treat the punch and regrind it. So I reground it. And then when I went to reheat treat it, I used the oxyacetylene torch. And, you know, heating up the thing... Quenched it in water, and as I turned around, I waved the torch over the top of the... <laughs> over the top of the <laughs> petrol. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it was a hot day, so... <laughs> it was just... Woof. And, uh, yeah, I went and grabbed the, uh, the fire extinguisher. Turned out to be a water fire extinguisher. Oh. Went and... Yeah, just sprayed flaming petrol all over the ground.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, went and grabbed the hose, because I thought that was a good idea. Sure. Because my panic brain was, yeah, spread it even more. Um, And then couldn't find the fire blanket and couldn't do anything about it. So basically I just let it burn and uh, it ended up destroying a welder in the process. Oh my God. Uh, (laughs) But uh, yeah, not having those
1: redundancies in place really sucked right then. The Uh, trick is you're supposed to click the undo button.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. My uncle, my uncle pointed out how much of an idiot it was. He was like, "Sam, what's the floor of the shed made out of?" <laughs> and I'm like, "Sand." <laughs> yeah, no. uh, anyway, so uh, yeah, the, having redundancies and that kind of thing is really important because things can go wrong. Yes, and will go wrong. Oh yeah,
1: it's Murphy's law. Oh yeah, whatever can and, go wrong uh, will go wrong.
0: Yeah, I, I, whenever I buy a pair of safety glasses or earplugs, I'll always buy two. Um, and I'll keep one of them in the package in a drawer somewhere Mm -hmm. because safety glasses get scuffed up and destroyed regularly in my (laughs) workshop. And they're so
1: cheap for a basic set.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and a cheap set will be better than nothing. That's right. So even if you're, you know, if you, even if you grab those $2 sets from your local hardware store that really aren't great, but you know, they'll do in a pinch and stick them in a drawer somewhere, at least, you know, you have them. If your good set, go bye-bye. That's it. Yeah, but anyway, I think Alex is about to pass out in his chair. Oh, perpetually. <laughs> perpetually, we've we've discovered perpetual uh, lack of motion. <laughs> um.
2: <laughs>
1: so anyway, if like, we went through a lot of emails today, but if you want to add to that pile, um, I highly recommend sending us an email with your question about blacksmithing or bladesmithing to ask.forgecast at gmail.com and do follow us on facebook and instagram if you haven't already and if you're looking for sam where can they find you
0: you can find me at sam towns bladesmith on (laughs) youtube instagram etsy facebook patreon
1: twitch the kitchen sink You can find Alex. I go by Valhalla Ironworks, and you can find me on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and Redbubble and Etsy and Patreon and Twitch. And guys, don't forget, this month, there have already been some stellar entries. Um, The challenge, Forgecast challenge, is to make a friction folder. It doesn't have to be a pretty one, just has to work. It doesn't even have to be a friction folding knife. It could be a comb or a bottle opener or whatever you want. Uh, It just needs to have that friction folder mechanism and make sure to tag hashtag ForgeCastChallenge on any post that you do about it so that we can see it because we love seeing your work. Challenge yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's it.
0: Go outside your comfort
1: zone. Yeah. All right, so I hear the music fading in. That means the goofy laughs are coming. (laughs) We'll see you next week, guys. Bye, guys. Bye.